in our uh, Bibles for our first reading to Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 1. Hear now the inerrant, infallible, and inspired word of God. I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you that you walk worthy of the vocation wherewith you are called, with all lowliness and meekness, with long-suffering, forbearing one another in love, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one spirit, even as ye are called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is above all and through all and in you all. But unto every one of us is given grace according to the measure of the gift of Christ. Wherefore he saith, When he ascended up on high, he led captivity captive and gave gifts unto men. Now that he ascended, what is it but that he also descended first into the lower parts of the earth? He that descended is the same also that ascended up far above all heavens that he might fill all things. And he gave some apostles and some prophets and some evangelists and some pastors and teachers for the perfecting of the saints, for the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ, till we all come in the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God unto a perfect man, unto the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ." that we henceforth be no more children, tossed to and fro, and carried about with every wind of doctrine, by the slight of men and cunning craftiness, whereby they lie in wait to deceive. But speaking the truth in love, may grow up into him in all things, which is the head, even Christ, from whom the whole body fitly joined together and compacted, by that which every joint supplieth, according to the effectual working in the measure of every part, maketh increase of the body unto the edifying of itself in love. This I say, therefore, and testify in the Lord, that ye henceforth walk not as other Gentiles walk, in the vanity of their mind, having the understanding darkened, being alienated from the life of God, through the ignorance that is in them, because of the blindness of their heart, who, being past feeling, have given themselves over unto lasciviousness to work all uncleanness with greediness. But ye have not so learned Christ. If so be that ye have heard him and have been taught by him as the truth is in Jesus, that you put off concerning the former conversation the old man which is corrupt according to the deceitful lusts, and be renewed in the spirit of your mind, and that you put on the new man which after God is created in righteousness and true holiness. Wherefore, putting away lying, 
Speak every man truth with his neighbor, for we are members one of another. Be ye angry and sin not. Let not the sun go down upon your wrath. Neither give place to the devil. Let him that stole steal no more, but rather let him labor, working with his hands the thing which is good, that he may have to give to him that needeth. Let no corrupt communication proceed out of your mouth, but that which is good to the use of edifying, that it may minister grace unto the hearers. And grieve not the Holy Spirit of God, whereby ye are sealed unto the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath, anger and clamor, and evil speaking be put away from you with all malice. And be ye kind one to another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, even as God for Christ's sake hath forgiven you. May God add his blessing to the reading and hearing of his most holy word. All right, so the first thing that we have to do in unpacking chapter 4 is we have to remember the context that we're in. When Paul will say to the Gentile Christians, as he's speaking to them most specifically in Ephesus, he will say to them that you put on the new man. Remember, that's not the first time we've heard that. We heard that all the way back in chapter 2 when Paul said that, Christ has torn down the the middle wall of partition, even the laws of commandments and ordinances, the Old Testament ceremonies that separated Jew and Gentile. And from those twain, those two, has made one new man. Now he says you're going to put on that new man here in chapter 4. It's a very interesting thing to think about, right? So what were the Gentiles learning in chapters 2 and 3? They learned that they were to be one new man with the Jews, they learned of the mystery in chapter 3 that Jews and Gentiles would be the same fellow heirs in one body. Okay, so now Paul turns his attention, if you will, to the Gentiles, and he's going to say to them, but what that means is not that you remain in your Gentile lives. You must put on the new man. You must become one in the right way with your Jewish counterparts. And this is what chapter 4 is about then. There is a vocation that we speak of in verse 1, right? Uh, you walk worthy of the vocation wherewith ye are called. It's a little less clear in English, uh, but we might say with the calling in which you are called. We use that word vocation today, but normally we use that for our jobs. Um, we will say, uh, what is your job? What is your vocation? It's just a Latin word. It means calling, right? We get the same, we, you know, we get the word voice out of that same Latin root there, okay? Some of you have studied languages. You know what the vocative case is. That's the speech case, right? That's the calling out case. Okay, so we have a calling. What calling is he talking about? He's not talking about your jobs. He's talking about your effectual calling. He's talking about that calling by which you came to Jesus Christ. So we need to walk worthy of that calling. And the first thing that he will write in this calling is with lowliness, meekness, and humility. We are not called to Christ in pride. We are called in humility. And humility means what? Well, it means that we don't argue with Christ. 
It means we submit to his commands and counsels. It means that, as Jesus told his disciples in the upper room discourse, if you love me, you keep my commandments. My commandments are sweet to you. So there is a, there is a uh, unity that rises up out of this meekness. And that unity, beloved, is not with one another primarily. It is with Christ. Maybe you've heard me say this before. We need to say it again here. Because unity is being joined to Jesus Christ and following him. And schism, division, is division from Christ. We can be divided one from another rightly. Division is not a sin. Schism from Christ is the sin that must be avoided. So we are called to Jesus Christ. We want to endeavor to keep then the unity, notice, of the Spirit. The unity that is brought about by the Spirit of God, the Spirit of Christ, who is the revealer of Christ, the illuminator of sound doctrine, that which we all must follow. Right? So, unity here is not the goal. Unity with Christ is the goal. Unity with his doctrine is the goal, with his teaching, with his practice. And schism is schism from Christ. So we want to endeavor then to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. That's because um, it it is the bond of the Spirit and we are to endeavor. That means that we make use of all godly means to do so. Right? All godly means. Studying our Bibles, discussing with one another, Submitting to one another in the fear of the Lord. And as Paul will go on to say, listening to our teachers in the Lord. Alright, so notice then, we, we said at the outset in chapter 1 when we were introducing the book, that the word one plays a very large part in the Ephesian epistle. Now notice we see one body, one spirit, even as you're called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is above all and through all and in you all. So, unity here is unity with God, with his baptism, with his doctrine, with his son, with his practice, all of those things. That's where the unity is found, beloved. Uh, It's not found in simply being united for the sake of unity and compromising and and, um, turning a blind eye to falsehood and bad doctrine. No. And horrible practice. No. Unity is founded as we unite to the Lord and in all of those uh, standards, uh, all of those aspects of unity that we read about here. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, and so on. That's where unity is found. Okay, now... You might uh, think, be tempted to think that if the chapter came to an end there with verse 6, that we're all the same people then. There's just one Lord and there's one body and all the members of the body are the same. But notice Paul immediately explodes that idea. We're not all the same. Uh-oh. Now we're just, you know, we're heading off into hate speech saying we're not all the same. We're not all the same, beloved. We all have different gifts and talents. We all have different likes and preferences. Let's remember that the Lord has created a great variety uh, in the human family, right? There's a great variety among us. 
Okay, and what is that variety as it plays out in the church? Notice, but unto every one of us is given grace according to the measure of the gift of Christ. So Christ has not gifted everyone equally in the church. And so now he will quote from Psalm 68. When he led, um, when he ascended up on high, he led captivity captive and gave gifts to men. Then you'll note that there's a parenthesis. Let's talk about the quotation from Psalm 68 first. This is, the, this is one of those triumphal psalms. This is Christ ascending up to his throne. And as a triumphal king, what those kings would often do in the ancient world is they would give gifts as they ascended up after a victory. Right? They would take much spoil. And when they took that spoil, they would give gifts. So his spoil is the captives that he leads Right? He's leading Christ, is leading captivity to himself, those that were formerly captives to their former master, sin, and Satan. He's taken them, he has spoiled that former master of those gifts, and he has taken them, and he's leading them to his throne as a part of his nation, as a part of his kingdom, and then in so doing, he is also shedding abroad gifts in that kingdom. Now, now that he has triumphed, he, he, like a victorious king, sheds forth those gifts. Now we have the parenthesis. And the parenthesis is, who is he that ascended? The same one that descended into the lowest parts of the earth. The lowest parts of the earth, that means that Jesus Christ, in his incarnation, was indeed conceived in that lowest and weakest conception of what humanity is. Right? I mean, think of that, that person immediately after they are conceived or right at the very second they are conceived. They are at that point the lowest and most vulnerable of humanity. Christ ascended, or sorry, descended that far. All the way down there. Right? So he, 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 de- he descended into the lowest part of the earth he that descended is the same also that ascended up far above all heavens that he might fill all things. And so he went from that weakest and lowest to the greatest that can be imagined. This is the Lord Jesus Christ. So what were the gifts that he gave? Now that we've closed the parenthesis, what are the gifts that he gave? If you read it and take those, what is it, uh, two verses, nine and ten, and simply Treat them as a parenthesis and read from verse 8 to 11. Notice what it says. He ascended up on high, gave gifts to men, and he gave some apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, some pastors, and teachers. What did Jesus give as triumphal gifts to his church? He gave the teaching office in all of its aspects. Apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, teachers. Three of those are what we call extraordinary offices. They existed in the days of the apostles and uh, prophets of old. And then two of them are ordinary offices, which are perpetual until the Lord returns. And that is pastors and teachers. What do they all have in common? They are all the teaching office of the church. The Lord has not left us without teachers, in other words. In fact, this is a part of his promise. I will give you pastors after my own heart that will feed you with good things, is how the prophet Jeremiah puts it. Okay, and so this is what he gave. Now, why did he give it? 
And here we have a controversy in the modern age. It's too bad because the controversy, as many have taken it up, has destroyed much sound Christian truth. Notice, why did he give those five offices, those five, or the teaching office generally? For the perfecting of the saints, comma, which belongs there. For the work of the ministry, comma, for the edifying of the body of Christ. So five discrete offices, right? And then three particular ministries performed by those offices. In the Confession of Faith in chapter 25, the chapter on the church, we will say that the Lord gave the teaching ministry of the church for the gathering and perfecting of the saints. That is, to make her number whole, and then also to make her mature and whole in that way. Both things are true. And both are considered here in this word perfecting. Some modern translations of the Bible have for the equipping of the saints. Equipping is not a particularly bad translation, except that it's used badly, in that what you will hear in modern churches today that, that subscribe to this version, they'll say, it's the minister's job to equip the saints to do the ministry, sort of to work himself out of the job. Well, that's not exactly right. That's not why we have a ministry. The ministry is for the perfecting of the saints. That is, to bring you to full maturity. And also, to bring you to your full number. As the preaching of the gospel goes forth, the Lord gathers to the preaching of the word and to the ministry of the word those saints, those that are elect from the foundation of the world. He will gather them in his due time through the preaching ministry. This is why Paul will say, it is by the foolishness of preaching that God has has shamed the, quote, wise things of this world. Okay, so notice, for the perfecting of the saints, for the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ, and then verse 13, till we all come in the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God unto a perfect man, unto the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. The ministry is given to the church for her full perfecting so that we rise up as the people of God being instructed from the word of God to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. Everything that Christ has purchased for us in knowledge, righteousness, and holiness, which is what he'll go on to explain a little bit later in this chapter. So the ministry is a service. That's what the word ministry means. And who does the minister serve? Please get this one right. The minister serves Christ. He's a minister of Christ. You've heard me say this before. I'll say it again. The minister of a church doesn't work for you, beloved. He works for Christ. He works on your behalf, but he will give account to Christ. That's the boss. When you attempt to tell the pastor what his job description is, tell him from the mouth of Christ, and he'll hear you. Right? Because that's the boss. He, Christ sets the job description of the minister. He's the boss. He's, he's the, the one that Paul will say, I'm simply his bondservant. I'm a bondservant of Christ. So that's what a minister is. He's a servant. He is given for the perfecting of the saints and then for the building up of the body of Christ. And why then do we need a ministry? Paul will go on to state that in verses 13 through 17 or 16. 13 through 16. The first comes to us from Psalm 68, where Paul's quoting from. 
What did the psalmist say? Why did he lead captivity captive? For the rebellious. Because we come into this world as rebels. Seeing that we're rebels, we need a ministry to call us to be reconciled to Christ. That's why the minister is also called the minister of reconciliation. He's he's reconciling the rebels to Christ. Secondly, we need a ministry because it says here that we're vulnerable. There are men that lie in wait in craftiness to lead us astray. We need a ministry to keep us straight from that. And oh, how, how much of a curse it is when the minister himself is a deceiver rather than one who tells the truth. He's given to keep the people from that vulnerability. Third, because we're children. I know none of us like to be called children. If I said to you, oh, you're a child, you, you'd, you know, you'd have to restrain yourself. And I would never speak to you that way. It'd be disrespectful. But Paul can speak to us like that. That we should be no more children tossed to and fro and about by every wind of doctrine. The slight of man whereby they lie in wait to deceive. Then he'll say we need a ministry because we need to learn how to speak the language of Zion. We need to learn to speak the truth in love. And that is how we will edify one another in that office that we have toward one another. It's not the same office as the ministry, but we are still to speak the truth in love one to another that the church might be edified and not torn down. Edified, that's simply a word which means to build up. We get our English word um, edifice from that, right? Same root. An edifice is nothing other than a building, right? Okay, so that takes us down through verse 16. From whom the whole body fitly joined together, compacted by that which every joint supplieth, according to the effectual working in the measure of every part, maketh increase of the body unto the edifying of itself in love. So these Gentiles then are to learn to fold themselves into this church that was largely Jewish up to that time. Not by taking on to themselves Jewish ceremony, but by taking on this readiness to speak one to another and to take their part among the church to edify the church in love. So then in verse 17, Paul will turn his attention once more directly to the Gentiles and he will tell them that they have to put off the old man and put on the new man, which after God is created in righteousness and true holiness. So notice then that as Gentiles, they don't get to bring their carnal practices into the church. Well, it may be true that we're no longer sacrificing animals, right, in the first century. That's no longer required of churches because Christ, our Passover, is sacrificed for us. But those moral categories of uncleanness, uprightness, and so on, those remain. That's the general equity principle that comes directly out of the Old Testament into the New Right? Unclean in the Old Testament meant what? You touched something wrong. Unclean in the New Testament means what? You have a foul attitude. A bad set of thoughts. And that must also be cleaned and cleansed. Not only outwardly, but especially inwardly by the sprinkling of the blood of Christ. Alright, so Gentiles, how do they come into this world? In the vanity of their mind at the end of verse 17. Their understanding is darkened. They're alienated from the life of God through the ignorance that is in them and their blindness. Their past feeling. They've given themselves over to lasciviousness. That just means illicit desire. And to work all uncleanness with greediness. 
Well, Paul's not pulling any punches. You Ephesians, you need to recognize who your back, what your background was. And you need to run clear of that. You're required. There's a, there's a vocation. You're to walk worthy of that vocation, that calling, by putting away what you brought with you from your Gentile lives. And so, then, notice, you've not learned Christ this way, but if you've been taught by him, uh, as the truth is in Christ, that you put off the former conversation, that old man conversation there, it means lifestyle, which is corrupt after the deceitful lust, and be renewed in the spirit of your mind. And then you put on the new man, which after God is created in righteousness and true holiness. So, Notice that this new man then, he has standards by which he lives. And so the rest of the chapter then, verses 25 through the end, is all about putting off and putting on. And and you can see them. They're very obvious, these things that Paul says. Notice, put away lying. Speak every man the truth with his neighbor. That's the first one. The second one, be angry and sin not. Let not the sun go down on your wrath. There is a just anger, but sinful anger, put it off. Don't let the sun go down upon that. Don't give place to the devil. Let him that stole, steal no more. Rather, let him labor, working with his hands, the thing that is good, that he may be generous instead. Instead of taking, giving. Put off the old, put on the new. Let no corrupt communication, verse 29, proceed out of your mouth. But that which is good to the use of edifying, that it may minister grace to the hearers. Remember, this is the same edification we just read about. So no more corrupt speech, but edifying speech instead. And then, grieve not the Holy Spirit of God, whereby ye are sealed unto the day of redemption. There are several purpose statements. This is the why we put off the old and put on the new man. And then finally, verse 31, bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, evil speaking. Put that all away. And instead, put on... Kindness, tenderheartedness, forgiving one another, even as you have been forgiven. So put off and put on. It's a very simple outline there at the end, isn't it? Very easy to see once you enter into the the sweep of what Paul is saying. And I'll just say this one thing in closing on Ephesians 4. And that is that he said that that what we are to learn to do from the teaching office of the church is we are to learn to speak the language of Zion. That is... To learn to speak the truth in love. That's the main thing we learn to do. That's how we edify one another. And notice then in this last section, 25 through 32, that three times, not just once, not just twice, but three times he speaks about the words that come out of our mouth. The put off old man speech and put on new man speech that we may edify one another. With that then, we come to the close of Ephesians 4. Let's stand.